Okay, we're going to get started again. <clears throat> so, you see that we're going to cover two scripture passages uh, for our last session, and I've I want us to merge them together because I I, I think they're they're helpful taken together, um, and hopefully this will be clear. If it's not, the Q and A will reveal it. But let me begin by reading Colossians three one through four. And then we'll pray. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have so aligned us with your Son, that you so associate us with your Son, that we are so united to your Son in all of his work, that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ or from the righteousness of God that we have by faith in Christ and the holiness that we have through Christ our Savior. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to think upon the implications of this blessed union that we enjoy with our Savior. What it means for us as individual Christians and what it means for us in marriage. Help us in this, we pray, as we look heavenward in this last talk. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it's interesting how the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 assumes our union with Christ. As he says in other places, we have died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we have been made alive with Christ, raised with Christ. And he says here, we are seated with Christ. He assumes that. And he moves right on to the implications of it. And he says, set your mind on the things that are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind, verse 2, on the things that are above, none of the things that are on earth. Here is that same word again. Set your minds. Phreneo, this, this Greek word we talked about last night, that, that really speaks to our mindset and, and our attitude. What is the disposition and the trajectory of, of our thinking? And as we saw last night, a couple of passages, this is why uh, Christ rebukes Peter. He says, you do not have, you've not set your mind on the things of God. You set your, your mind on the things of of, of man, that you're, you're being earthbound, you're thinking in a, in a human-concentric way, as it were, a self-centered way, not thinking with the agenda of God and what his plan is for my life. And that's why Christ opposes him with such vehemence. He says, get behind me, Satan, because this is exactly what Satan told him in the wilderness. Abandon this, this way of the cross and sacrifice. Romans 8, 5 uh, to set the mind the flesh is death, but to set the mind the spirit, this is life and peace. Romans 8, two different mindsets, two different lives, two different trajectories, two different destinations. It's more than just having this thought or that thought. It's that line of thought. And that's what we had in Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have the mind of Christ. And so to set your mind then uh, on things above, is Paul is saying that uh, when you commit your mind to run along a path, it's that path that should lead to heaven. It should lead you to think upon things 
above. This should be the, the direction of your thought life as a Christian. Now, in one sense, it's, it's obvious what he's saying, but in another sense, it's not so obvious or clear to us because when he says above here, he's obviously talking about heaven. You read that, you knew that. You didn't have to pay me to tell you that, but it's too late. I already did, all right? But it's more than what you think. And it's more than what we tend to think when we think of heaven, because we may think of heaven uh, primarily, sometimes only, as a future reality. When we see the word heaven, we think of what lies ahead. But notice in this text, it does not say, I want you to set your mind on the glory that awaits us, or the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Set your mind on eternal life. Or set your mind on your future inheritance, as Peter does in 1 Peter 1. He doesn't say that. And what he's showing us is that heaven is both the world to come and the life above we have now. In other words, heaven is not just about the life that you have in eternity with Christ, but it's about the life that you have presently in Christ. That's what heaven is to us. And what he's saying is that your life is to be oriented by heaven. Or we could put it this way, your life is to be more oriented by heaven than anything on earth. And in fact, as you get into to the New Testament, it's apparent what the authors there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are telling us is that heaven is more real for a Christian than earth. We're not saying this is an illusion. We're not saying this, is, this life is not filled with blessing, but it's showing us what is the, the real orientation of our life including our marriage. And what he's saying is that heaven is what gives us perspective on our life. It gives us perspective about what is that future life of glory? What does that mean for us? And how does that shape our expectations in our life now? And Paul is always eager to talk about that in 1 Thessalonians. In light of the coming of Christ, in light of that future inheritance, what does that have to do with your life now in terms of a life of godliness and holiness and priority? So heaven gives perspective in light of that future life and glory. But here, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying heaven should give you perspective about your present life right now in the power of Christ or in the power of the Spirit. So he says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. And so, again, we think of that passage in Philippians 3 where Paul speaks about these Judaizers and he says, their minds are set on earthly things our citizenship is in heaven, and that citizenship is a present reality. Now, the reason that Paul is doing this, this is a slight detour, is because the Church of Colossae was being hounded uh, by teachers who were uh, intrigued with the supernatural, but not just supernatural, with mysticism, uh, superstition, things like that. And they said the way to, to get in touch with these powers and superstition is Christianity plus ascetic practices, harsh treatment of the body, neglecting certain foods, um, making these sort of legalistic demands. It was kind of an ironic thing. Uh, and that's what Paul says. He says, you, you've heard this, do not touch, do not taste, no, do not handle. And he says, that has the appearance of godliness, but he says, it's going to do you no good for fighting the flesh. And so here's the irony. They're hearing this teaching from these teachers of Colossae who are mixing Christianity with syncretism and this other stuff saying, the way to get in touch with the supernatural is with the harsh treatment of the body. And Paul's answer is, everything you need in terms of your spiritual vitality, 
is found in Christ. He's saying, yes, a supernatural Israel, but you're not going to get there through this harsh treatment of the body and through asceticism and through legalistic practices. The way to get in touch with your spiritual vitality and power is to trust in Christ. And his message to the church of Colossae is everything you need is right now seated at the right hand of God, right hand of majesty. He is your all in all. And his grace is more than sufficient to help you in this life, to orient your life. to. And it's, in fact, he says, your life is hidden in Christ. Now, this is, a, this is an important perspective. Uh, Harry Blamires, he wrote this book, The Christian Mind, years and years ago. And he asked this question. Is it possible that the only difference between a Christian and a secularist is that the Christian believes in a life to follow and the secularist does not. But daily life is thought of and talked about in exactly the same way. That a Christian and somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural at all, when it comes to daily life, they live that life, they talk about that life in exactly the same way. The only difference between them is the Christian says, oh, there's, there's life to come after death. And Paul, obviously, is saying that's not true, that heaven is more than just what awaits us in eternal life. It's the life that we have presently, even as we walk in this earth, that our life and our vitality is found there in Christ. And there are so many instances in Scripture where we have this insight, and you've probably never seen it before, but you just we pass over it, like in John 3.31, that he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In John 8.23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. John 19.11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, etc., etc. Think of the prodigal son. When he came to himself, seated around all those pigs, with all those pigs, he comes to himself and realizes, I need to go home and repent. And he comes to his father, what's the first thing out of his, out of his mouth? It's not, Father, I've sinned against you. He says, I have sinned against heaven. It's the present reality. It's this life in light of, of heaven. Think of John the Baptist when his disciples come back to him and say, all of our guys are going to this other man, this other guy. What are we going to do about this? His ministry is growing. Ours is shrinking. And John the Baptist says, no one would receive not even one thing unless it was given to him from heaven. He understands his ministry in present context of what he's received from heaven. And Christ says about the baptism of John the Baptist uh, to the Pharisees who are trying to trap him in his words. And he, he has a question for them, as he always does. Is the baptism of John the Baptist, is it from heaven or is it from man? We have all these, these passages, these instances that show there's this self-consciousness of these servants of Christ or of Christ himself that understand their life and their ministry and their calling and their lives in light of heaven presently. It's interesting that this is the call of all the prophets. Somebody has said, every prophet, it's like he had a, a foot in the, in, the, in the visible world and he had a foot in the invisible world. And God was constantly giving them 
vision of that invisible world. And what, they, what is their job? It's to bring a word from that invisible world into the visible world. Ezekiel, right? He sees wills. Isaiah is caught up and sees the glory of God, thinks he's going to die. That's what the prophets did. They're bringing that word from, from the world that's more real, the unseen, into this, into this visible world, bringing that word. And Paul is talking about this, the same mindset. Where is your life? Where is it hidden right now? It's in Christ. And so we need to, to set our face towards heaven, he says, and keep the supernatural mindset. A mindset that is acknowledging the dimension of the supernatural. B.B. Warfield was asked the question, you know, is supernaturalism necessary for Christianity? And he said, there are three great themes in the Bible. Redemption. But redemption assumes the second theme, but revelation. But revelation assumes the third theme, supernaturalism. No supernaturalism, no Christianity. And you see this mindset of, of, of understanding heaven and our things from above is an important weapon in our constant collision with a secular mind. Unless, as Gerhard Voss says, we become like Esau and sell our heavenly birthright for a mess of earthly stew. And many Christians do. You see, there's a cosmic battle between good and evil that divides the universe right down, right down the middle. It's cut it, cuts it all in half. And Paul says, we battle against this present darkness. He doesn't say future darkness. It is this present darkness. And you and I, as disciples of Christ, are listed right now fighting for the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, fighting for the cause of Christ right now. This is our mentality. This is our mindset. Every Christian understands this, that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers in the heavenly places. That's our mindset. And Paul's reminding us that, of this. And so the question is, is how do we see our marriage in light of this? But I need to remind you of faith before I get on to that. What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So in Romans and Galatians, Paul talks about faith as trust. That faith is that lone instrument of justification. We could put it this way. Faith only has one job, one job, and it's to lay hold of Christ, to trust in Christ. It's the lone instrument of justification, we say in theology. But in the book of Hebrews, the author kind of steps back and takes kind of a wider vision of things. And you think of the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11, and it's showing us all the things that our forefathers were able to do because of faith. It's showing us what is the fruit of faith. And there we see that faith is an instrument that lays hold of the unseen and the promised world. Everything our forefathers did was because of faith. And Gerhardus Voss says that really what we have there, the word faith is simply another word for a heavenly mindedness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 is really bringing this out and how uh, by faith we look to the things above where Christ is. And he says our life is hidden with Christ. And this is the interesting word, hidden. Because hidden is a word that has a double meaning. It can refer to something that is secured. There's something valuable in your house. I guarantee you, I could not find it. It's not sitting out in the open. You have it hidden. 
somewhere it's locked up in a box. It's what we do with things that are important to us. And we think of our union with Christ. This is real, but it's constantly threatened by our sin and the lives of the world. But because it's hidden with Christ, we are inseparably joined to him by a bond that cannot be broken. So it is secured. But hidden also means uh, what is unseen. And we hide things where people can't see them. And here again, our union with Christ is real, but it's veiled. It's not always seen. It's veiled sometimes by our own sin, by our own doubts, by the voices of the world, by our suffering. And it's hidden from the world that can't ever possibly appreciate all that Christ is to us, but it's not hidden from God. And it's not hidden from eyes of faith. And Paul is encouraging us in our faith. Our our faith in Christ uh, is uh, for things above. And what he's reminding us is that everything in our life, it finds its meaning, it finds its direction in that one that's seated at God's right hand. It's, It's our life hidden in Christ. This is what orients us. This is what establishes us and and defines us. That's what gives us purpose. It gives us direction. It sets our daily agenda because our minds are fixed on things above. And this is what sets the course for our marriage. All those things that would commend Christ and his righteousness, all those things that aligned uh, with his his will, all those things uh, that will strengthen his kingdom, all those things that will strengthen our spouse in pursuit of that kingdom. This is what should orient our marriage. It's not the world, it is Christ. And we don't look to the world to tell us or to define for us, what does it mean that something is good? The world doesn't define for us where we find joy or where do we find peace. The world is the last place that knows where to find peace. The world is completely restless. It can find no peace. We don't look to the world to define the word love. And so we don't look to the world to help us understand what marriage is. We look to Christ for that. And that's why we look to things above. And you're thinking, well, how on earth does that have anything to do with marriage? What you've been talking about. It has everything to do with marriage. Because what Paul is saying is this world does not define our identity and things that are most precious to us. In fact, we define everything in this life in light of Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, Because you and I are not citizens of this world, we are citizens of heaven. And heaven is not just a future reality, it is a present reality. And our life is hidden in things above. That's why it has everything to do with marriage. And maybe you don't believe me yet, you're still skeptical. I say, okay, that's fair, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. Now this is a scary passage, all right? So... If you're not up to it, if you're not brave of heart, don't turn there. But you should. It's God's word. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. And this will help us to appreciate what we've just kind of unfolded in Colossians 3. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, that those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. All right, this is a little bit frightening, I know. 
He's not saying what you think he's saying, but maybe he is. All right, so just hang in there. But notice the bookends of this text in verse 29 and verse 31, how it begins and ends. He's putting these things in the context for us. Verse 29, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. Verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, he's talking about heaven now more as a future orientation. So in Colossians 3, we're talking about heaven as a present reality, things above. This is more oriented towards the future, but he's speaking of the same reality of heaven. All right, so we got that. He's talking about end times. And he's saying in light of the fact that the time is short, et cetera, et cetera, and that the fact that this world is passing away, this should call us to be diligent and attentive about our lives as Christians, that we need to concentrate our attention upon the Lord and make sure always that first things are first. How do we please Christ? Now he's talking about this, this concentrating attention upon the Lord because these are unusual times. And we don't know exactly what he means by this, that the time is short. It could be that he was uh, troubled about uh, something that was going to come very quickly uh, to the church, that Paul had insight of this. There's a wave coming, and he's concerned that, that time, like an unfurled sail, any moment could pick up a huge gust and perhaps blow across the church. We get those kind of warnings in uh, the book of Revelation as, as Christ speaks to the seven churches. He said, this is about to happen. You're about to suffer some persecution. Maybe it's something like that. We don't know. But it still applies to, to all of us in the fact that this present world is going to pass away. And that has something to do with how we conduct our lives, our marriages, and all this. And so what does he mean in verses 29 through 31 then? And what he's doing, Paul says, we need to have the right attitude and the right perspective upon marriage and how we go about our lives. So let me begin with what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that if you have a wife, in light of the coming of Christ and the fact that this world is passing away, this is not an excuse to neglect your marital duties. He's not saying in the same passage, a little bit further, to reject all earthly goods, or that this is an excuse for you to do your work poorly, or to renounce the world that we've been sent into. He's not saying that. We are called to to love our spouse and our children, our brothers and sisters, to love our neighbor, to do good, to work hard, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn. We have all these obligations. That's not his point. He's not saying in light of the coming of Christ, you can neglect these things or forget about them or just pretend you're not married. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, is that a believer knows that they, they cannot become too preoccupied with earthly circumstances and things. That all these things have to be brought into perspective in my devotion to the Lord. That's what receives my first love. You see, I've been saying all along that marriage is our most important earthly relationship. But see, this passage is putting it into perspective of our heavenly relationship. That my devotion to God, this is what helps to clear out my priorities. This is what helps me to be steady and single-minded and in light of that, I need to accept all of God's blessings and to be a steward of those blessings and to enjoy them. That's one of the messages of the book of Ecclesiastes. You should eat, you should drink, you should enjoy life, you should work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor. It says that repeatedly in that book. Enjoy these things, but you don't live for them. 
You don't become possessed for these things. These things cannot become idolatrous. It's, it's, it's like how we interpret what Christ says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Christ is not telling us there that we are to have hatred for our kinfolk and for our families. That's what he's saying. He's saying when you compare these loves, there's no love compared to following me. And the summary statement is, is captured well in verse 31, that those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. In other words, it's a believer deals with this world as a person who knows that my work and, and my worth is not bound up in my work, that there are real limits to what I'm doing in this world, that I, I'm, I live in this world, but I'm not of this world. I'm, I'm going to use these things, but I'm not going to abuse them. I'm not living for them. These are not my idols. And that's what Paul is saying here. All of this in light of the fact that the present form of this world is passing away. There is nothing solid in this world. There's nothing that you and I see and touch that will last in its present form. Its very nature is to pass away. And that Christian who acts as if this world and his values are permanent is mistaken. And in fact, they've, they've become disoriented. They've lost sight of what is our goal and what is it that my life is built upon. And so there's, there's a certain detachment that we have from all the things of this world that we're ready to, to cast loose from our grip. And the Christian knows I'm a citizen of heaven. That's where my treasure is. And this world has to give way to it. And my marriage has to be seen in light of it. And you see, this is where we need balance here in, in, in what we understand about, about marriage, having the right place, seeing it in this right place, having the right attitude. And on the one hand, it would be terrible to understate what marriage is. And I think it's fair to say that we as Christians, more than anyone else on this planet, value it and see it and fight for it. We're concerned about what the state says marriage is. It's Christians that seem to be invested in that more than anyone else. We're not interested in, in seeing marriage as a lesser institution. And Paul is not saying here, it's less spiritual than being single. And that's not his point in 1 Corinthians 7 either. That you and I see, gift as a, as a, see marriage as a gift. And we give thanks to God for it. We see it as his, his means of sanctifying us. And this marriage in many ways not only reflects my relationship with Christ, it's my marriage that has helped me in my walk with Christ. And that I see this as I see the first and the second commandments, to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And my Savior says, and the second is like unto it. The second is more similar than dissimilar. To love my neighbors myself often is the thing that reflects whether I love God with all my heart and soul. These two go together. And in fact, Peter says, be careful how you treat your wife, lest you hinder your prayers. My love of God, my love of neighbor, these are intertwined. And Paul understands that. So he's not saying that we understate marriage. What he's saying is we run the risk of overrating marriage. We run the risk 
of you trying to make your spouse into your savior and holding up your, your spouse to standards that are only appropriate for Jesus Christ. Paul's realistic. Marriage and family introduce new dimensions and intensity to life. They're marked by the cares and the struggles of this life, but Paul is not idealistic that marriage is not an end in itself. It's not a panacea. That's one of my great concerns for books on marriage. I was being asked a question about this, and they go in one or two directions. And the one direction, and I've seen more of these books in the last, I'd say, five to seven years. Here seems to be the sub-theme of the book. Marriage is going to be hard. I mean, it's going to be really hard. Like, what were you thinking getting married? This is going to be so difficult. Woe unto you for getting married. Right? Marriage is bliss. Every day is sunshine, roses. You can see the rainbow coming out of your marriage every morning. It's going to be easy. Marriage is hell on earth. Marriage is heaven on earth. <coughs> and there's, there's not this, this right balance in these things. And for some people, the, there's some literature that says the family is that only institution that will live long into eternity. It's like, I need to see the Bible verse that says that. But marriage is like that. But Paul is, is trying to uh, to show us how to see our marriage. We need to see our marriage in light of the reality of heaven. And it's possible to lift up your spouse in an idealistic way or your marriage. When, um, when Leah bore Reuben uh, to Jacob, what did she say? She said, now my husband will love me. All of her hope was cast in that child. Now he'll accept me. There's women who understand that. This is what will with his heart for me. It's sad that somebody would be in that place. There's many people who think that, you know, we're having our problems now, but when we get married, it'll be different. Everything will be easier then. That's not just an inflated view of marriage. That's an understatement of your own problems, but it also means you don't understand the purpose of marriage. And so, you know, what does our culture need to hear? What do the extremes of the church need to hear? We could have the discussion all day. What, what do we need to hear? And what, is, and what is Christ telling us in this living word of God that all things, even marriage, bow before Christ in their significance? That all things in our life find their meaning in Christ, even marriage. And despite all that scripture can say and does say from marriage, we have to admit that it has its, its limitations and we have to see it in light of Christ. Marriage can make you so happy, but your greatest happiness comes from Christ. And we should not expect that of our spouse. Marriage can give us tremendous satisfaction, but our ultimate fulfillment is found in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Marriage can offer you many opportunities for forgiveness, to be forgiven and to forgive, but marriage never provides atonement for sin. That's only found in Christ. There's joy and gratification and forgiveness that, that we can enjoy from our, sp our spouse, but all these things are rooted and found in Christ alone. I mean, what is the point of the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field? That the gospel is so valuable, it's worth selling everything else 
that you have, but it also means that everything else finds its meaning in light of it. Because nothing compares to Christ and knowing him. And I think it means that we have to appreciate our marriage in light of this. And I think this is the best thing we can do for our spouse if we can get this perspective that the, the best thing I can do for my spouse is to prepare her for heaven. It's to lead her to Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, not just to become Christ-like and, and put on a set of virtues. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the living Christ and to draw her to him, to encourage her always to him. So we should receive all of God's gifts with joy and for thankfulness, but to know that all these things are given to us not to compete with our interest in Christ, not to compete in our love for him, but to draw us to him. And no Christian sets his or her heart on the things of this life. And again, this passage is not telling us that we can turn our backs upon our God-given responsibilities like marriage. All it's talking about is bring our marriage under the Lordship of Christ and let it, let it serve Him and His purposes. And it's simply saying, let's keep our priorities straight. We can think of it this way. There's Mary and there's Martha. And Mary has chosen the better choice, the good portion, that one thing that was necessary will not be taken from her. Martha, you're busy about many things. You're distracted. I think it's that sort of thing, keeping our priorities straight, uh, straight and submitting everything to Christ, all of our joys, all of our sorrows, all of our possessions, all of our talents, and our marriage. And if we would do that, our spouse would enjoy us more. We would show them more contentment. We could build a stronger marriage. We'd be oriented in the right way. If I constantly put things in perspective of like, this thing that I'm fighting for right now in, in this argument, is this really worth fighting for in the light of eternity? In the light of the fact that Christ sees what's happening? Is this what's praiseworthy? I mean, it instantly in a flash puts everything in the perspective. How important is this? I think this is such a helpful thing. And I think one of the reasons it's, it's difficult for us is because we are, are not spiritually minded. We're not as heavenly minded as we ought to be. And I think it helps us to appreciate that the balance of what we're talking about in the first talk saying, this is, this is that one earthly relationship that shapes you in so many ways and your relationship with your parents, which you learn at home, it, it all has to shift because of this earthly relationship, but it's this earthly relationship that has to be seen in light of your heavenly relationship. And God makes this very clear in Ephesians 5. I mean, what's happening here? What is this a picture of? And Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm talking about what your marriage points to. And it's the love between Christ and his church, the groom and the bride. I mean, the whole point of, of, of marriage is meant to point to a greater union. It's meant to not just show it symbolically, it's meant to prepare you for it. There's, there's a relationship here. That this is the greatest gift God has given to you outside of the Son and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit for sanctifying you and preparing you for that, that union that will be consummated in heaven. And the sooner we get a, a sense of that, we, we get a sense of what are the greatest benefits that I enjoy in this life? What are the things that 
are important? What are the things worth dying for? What are the things worth living for? What are the things that I want to confess? Where do I want to forgive? Where do I want to move on with my spouse? What is that better life? Where is real security? And it's not in this world that's passing away. It's bound up with that kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And being betrothed and even united already to that heavenly bridegroom in Jesus Christ. And the best thing I can do for my spouse is to point them every single day to that union that they have with him. Who's gone to prepare a place for us. In my first congregation, uh, I served in Philadelphia area in Glenside. A lady came up to me and was quoting John Murray and people in the church would always quote John Murray and praise him um, for the things he would say. But this is the only time when somebody came up to me quoting John Murray and she was not happy. She says, I asked Professor Murray about marriage in heaven. And he said, no, no marriage in heaven. And it depressed her. She was married to a godly man. His name was Sam. Did his funeral. She said, it just, I can't imagine that. I've known him most of my life, been married to most of my life. Married to this beautiful man, no marriage in heaven. And I said, and that's just a hard spot. You know, I can't disagree with John Murray. I'm an OPC minister, that's unthinkable. But here she is. I know what she's trying to say. And I don't remember all the words I said. But I, but I told her this, that Christ never says we'll not see each other or recognize each other. But everything beautiful you saw in your husband was just a foretaste of what he was going to become. You got to see him become the man he was becoming, and it was lovely to you. You will see him at his best. You will see him in perfection, and you will not, technically speaking, be married to him. But it doesn't mean you'll forget him doesn't mean you'll stop loving him. But you'll be loving him in the context of him who loves you best. Christ. That seemed to help a little bit. Some of this is hard. It's beyond us. And I hope you've been encouraged in your marriage in the time we spent together. But I really honestly think the best thing I could say to you, if you could love your spouse in light of heaven, if you could love your spouse in light of the life that you have from above right now by faith in Christ, who wants to pour into your marriage his Holy Spirit, that is the best way you can love your spouse. I said that only once to one church. I said, what is my job as a pastor? It's to prepare you for death. It's to prepare you for death. To do everything I can to make sure that you are prepared to meet your maker, to meet Christ, to be prepared to die in peace and to go to him because all your confidence is in him. It's not something I've ever said in premarital counseling. Never said, your job is to prepare your spouse for death. I'm never going to say that. But this is a conference and unfortunately it's being recorded. But, um, but there's truth in that, is there not? Isn't it your job is to show them Christ and love them like Christ? That's where our life is. It's faith that lays hold of that and sees that. This is what our marriage can be. As you and I together are looking to Christ, what does he want for us?
What does he bid us do? And what is he helping us to do by his spirit right now? That's what we have to believe. That's what we have to do by his grace. Let us pray.